Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living. Amen. Amen. You can give the Lord a hand. Oh, hey, would you do me a favor? Would you turn to someone who's sitting near you and say, you absolutely made my morning by sitting next to me today. Would you just do that? You made my morning. You made my morning. <laughs> you don't know how hard it is to come up with something new every week. It's hard. It's, it's... If you have your Bibles, would you take them and turn to Mark, Mark chapter 10. We're going to go on a journey today that we started several weeks ago called Because of You. And in this series, we've been talking about living a life that endures beyond our own. It's how to have a, an eternal impact with our life. And we talked about prayer our first week, and it's because you prayed and the eternal impact of prayer. We talked about generosity and having a heart of generosity, how God calls us to that, and how He enables and gives grace in that, and it has an enduring impact. And people praise God because of genuine generosity. We talked about our choice. Choices, how because you chose and the decisive uh, moment of making a decision for Jesus Christ, how transformational that is. Last week we talked about because you cared, right? Just simply caring about people. Today it's uh, developing a heart of servanthood. It's just simply because you served, and it's the enduring impact of servanthood on eternity's sake. I'm always um, a little bit humbled by what I do that makes a difference in people's life and what I do that does not make a difference in people's lives. Uh, Pastor Dan, you're a communicator, and so we often think that our teaching is what's going to make the biggest impact in people's lives. And I'm always amazed at how little impact that probably makes or, or how people don't remember them. They remember the stories, but they don't remember the message, so, so to speak. And then there are times that um, people will say something that I did that really impacted them that I had no idea. It's very humbling because I've had people contact me 16, 20 years later and say, hey, when you did this, it made a huge impact in my life. And I'm like, I didn't remember doing Doing that and how God uses that in people's lives. And I'm not the only person, by the way, that's happened to. Billy Graham, he's passed away now, but Billy Graham had that happen to him. He was on a flight and he was sitting up in the area working on a message and getting ready for one of his crusades. And he says that there was a belligerent, there was a guy who had been having a little too much to drink. And so he was loud, he was obnoxious, he was a little belligerent, he was a little too flirty with the uh, airline attendant. And uh, it just kept going on, and he obviously noticed it. And finally, the lady looked at the man, and she said, you need to stop it right now. Do you know who's sitting behind you? It's Dr. Billy Graham. And the guy got up, a little tipsy, and he turned around, and he goes, Billy Graham, brother, you changed my life. The things you think that are going to impact people don't necessarily impact people. Jesus says, um, when you serve, when your heart is one of a servanthood, it's transformational. Now, Mark chapter 10 is where the journey begins. And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is using every opportunity to try to uh, impact and change the life of his disciples. He's trying to help them understand what it really means to be a Christ follower. They don't always get it perfectly. In Matthew chapter 10, it says that James and John, verse 35, it says that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Well, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. 
Now, if you're scratching your head, some of you are saying, wait a minute, as I remember the story, James and John's mom came to Jesus and asked that. That's actually Matthew's account. And you might be thinking, oh my word, Pastor Phil just revealed a a kind of a conflict there in Scripture. Actually, it's not a conflict. In Matthew, when Matthew is, by, by the way, Mark, whenever he writes, he's just writing the cliff notes, right? He gets right to the point. Matthew expounds it. That's why it's almost twice as long as the book of Mark. But Matthew and Mark agree completely on who was asking the question. Because in the book of Matthew, she's kind of the first uh, helicopter mom, right? She hovers. uh, She comes, James and John's mom comes, but Jesus doesn't answer her. Jesus answers James and John. Go look at the passage. When, when he is speaking, he doesn't speak toward her. He speaks to James and John because he knows who's initiating the question. And so he looks at James and John, just as he does in this passage, and he looks and he says, um, do you know what you're asking? Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Now, it struck me last night while I was reading through that passage that the cup that Jesus is about to drink is the cross. And if you remember on the cross, what does Scripture say? One was crucified on his right, one was crucified on his left. And, and they were both thieves, by the way. And I wonder if Jesus was saying, I don't think you want to go where I'm going. When I was a, uh, when the kids were little, um, they used to uh, always say, hey, Dad. Dad, where are you going? Where are you going? And I'd go, I'm going crazy. Want to go with me? And uh, it's just kind of that little thing. Is Do you really know what you're asking if you want to go with me? They're, they're thinking totally different than what Jesus is asking. Jesus says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be crucified. Do you really want any of this? They had no idea what they were saying. And Jesus, in his generosity, uh, he doesn't take them up on the offer. And he says, well, he says, uh, you will drink the cup I drink from. And you will be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those to whom they have been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And I I would just share with you, I don't think they're indignant because they, they couldn't believe that they asked. I think they were indignant because they asked before they got a chance to. I could see Peter in this whole thing going, wait, 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 wait. Okay, if anybody belongs on one of the sides, okay, I get get John because John's Jesus' favorite, and they're really good friends, and Jesus loves him. So I can kind of see John, but man, talk about nepotism. I mean, we, we don't need to have two of the same family sitting at the right and the left. And so if somebody, I'm in the top three, right? This is the vying for position. If, if one of us is going to sit at the right or the left of Jesus, I ought to be one of them. I think Judas is probably making a case. He's saying, hey, wait a minute. I'm the guy who has the money, right? The money guy always sits next to the main guy. And by the way, that's exactly what happens at the Lord's Supper in the last Passover. John's on one side. Judas is on the other side. So even in that whole scenario, I can see Judas making a position. The other guys probably didn't think they really warranted top five position. But if you're ever going to go for a top five position, now's the time to go for it. And Jesus looks at them. And he calls them together and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles 
lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to become, uh, who wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. By the way, all the gospel uh, writers, all of them deal with this whole idea of Jesus' words on servanthood. Uh, already talked about Matthew. We talked about Mark, right? Both of them actually talk about this exact episode, just a little different slant on it. Uh, Luke talks about the fact that during the actual Lord's Supper, when Jesus is giving them communion, something that's going to be a lasting legacy of who he is, um, Luke says it was during that last meal that a fight breaks out, and they start arguing over who's going to be first. And Jesus begins to give us some really incredible truths about servanthood that just jump out of this passage. Real quick, three observations. The first thing that I notice is that servanthood is really countercultural. It's just not the way the world does stuff. He says, he says, um, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, you could just say rulers of the world, they lord it over them. Uh, their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Say that phrase with me, would you? Not so with you. Jesus says, I realize that this is how everybody does it, but you're not everybody. Followers of Christ are not like everybody else. In fact, by virtue of how you serve others, you're actually going to distinguish yourself from the crowd. Everybody else is vying for position. Most universities don't have a school of servanthood, right? They have a school of leadership. They have a track that teaches you. And by the way, there is nothing wrong with leadership, right? But he just simply, this is not something the world puts a huge emphasis on. I did a, a sermon series, I think it was earlier this year, called Counter. And I went back and looked at the messages, and I couldn't believe I never addressed the whole issue of servanthood. Because if anything is counter, servanthood is counter to the way that most of us think about living. The second thing that I notice out of this passage is that it's not just countercultural, it's counterintuitive. It's not even natural. It, you, you wouldn't even expect him to say this. Uh, notice what it says. It says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. In another passage, it says he must be least of all. Um, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. And that is so counterintuitive because none of us would expect that. Now, I'm not a big racing fan. Um, I'm not a NASCAR fan per se. I mean, I like cars. They go fast. They're pretty. There you go. That's about all I know about NASCAR. I like that they have big engines. I like cars. I just don't care for NASCAR. I've watched very little indie car racing, but I do understand basic stuff, and that is if you want to win the race, it's better to start the race in the front of the pack, not the back of the pack. 
Okay, I, I think that's general. I, now, if I'm wrong, somebody will email me later, I'm sure. And they'll give me the whole detail. But there's a reason you fight for pull position, right? You do all this stuff in the early, you get the best pull time so that you can be in the prime spot because the fact is, if you're not in the pack, you're at the front of the pack, it's the best place. Now, I realize there's a whole theory of running. I realize that when you're in bike races, you want to draft people. I kind of get that concept. But the fact is, it is counterintuitive to think that if I want to be first, I got to end up last. And it doesn't make sense. In fact, um, we learn this with children. Um, in fact, I've got, I, I, got a, I don't know if I told you. I have a grandson. I don't know if I told you. I'm a grandpa. Um, Jackson is 10 months old, going on 11, and he is really quickly beginning to show the evidence of the sin nature. Somewhere between 10 months and two years, you see it, right? You don't have to teach a child to be about themselves. They're all about themselves. You don't have to teach a child to throw a fit. You don't have to teach a child to say, this is what I want. Why? Because they know what they want. I realize there's that rare little child. But it is nature to not want to be last. You want to be first. Number three. Servanthood is a key to actually becoming Christ-like. Jesus says, hey, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to die as a ransom for many. And so Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not doing myself. I came to serve, not to be served. I came to die and be sacrificed for many I am simply asking you to follow my lead because I want you to be like me. Now, I mentioned all the Gospels except one. Matthew tells this story. Mark tells this story. Luke gives us a different aspect and a different timing as they begin to talk about this story. John doesn't tell this story. John understands that a picture is worth a thousand words. So instead of telling you the story that everybody else told you, he simply shows you a real-life event in Jesus' life that perfectly illustrates it. And that shouldn't be completely surprising to us. John wrote his gospel at least 20, probably 30 years later than anyone else wrote their gospel. All the other gospels were out already. And John, when he writes his gospel, is writing the gospel to kind of fill in the blanks. These are some things you didn't know that you haven't heard about Jesus. I want to give you a few pictures that nobody else has given to you. And so he takes us to the moments before the Passover meal the night that Jesus is betrayed. By the way, John doesn't talk about communion, right? He doesn't, he doesn't teach that. Why? Because everybody else already taught it. But he does teach us about foot washing. John chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, just turn over to that passage. And in John chapter 13, it says that it was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world, and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. So Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power 
and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus says, well, you don't understand what I'm doing right now, but later you will understand. Oh, no, said Peter. That's Pastor Phil paraphrase. You shall never wash my feet. Well, Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you'll have no part with me. Well, then, Lord, Peter said, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, well, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you're clean, though not every one of you is clean. For he knew who it was who was going to betray him, and that's why he said not every one of you is clean. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, he returned to his place, and he says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher, the one who instructs you, and Lord, the one who gets to guide your life and call the shots. That's what those two words mean. And rightly so, for that is what I am. Well, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, I've preached on this passage before. I've taken a look at it from the eyes of Judas and how Jesus was willing to go after the one and and to wash the feet of the one who he knew was going to betray him. He was literally the one who would be the conduit by which he would be crucified and then his death would come. By this time, Jesus, see, I'm not going to guarantee this, but I will stand behind this. I believe that Jesus' understanding of who he was and the revelation of what was going to happen became progressive in his life. I think early on in his life, he understood who he was. He understood that God was his father. He understood those things. But as Jesus enters into his public ministry and as he begins to walk toward the crucifixion, everything came into laser vision. It's like binoculars that come into zoom and come into focus. He not only knew what was going to happen, he knew how it was going to happen. He knew the, he knew the events that would take place, so he knew that Peter was going to deny him three times. That's why he warns him, you're going to deny me three times before the, before the rooster crows tomorrow. He knew that, that, that Judas was going to betray him. That's why he said, go and do what you need to do. He, he gave him every opportunity. Jesus knew the manner in which he was going to die. I believe he knew exactly what was going to happen. And I think we can show that pretty clearly through Scripture. And so when he comes to this moment in his life, it's not like he served them without knowing all of that. It's not like later on he's like, oh man, I wish I hadn't served you all because you all blew it and you all ran from me. No, he did it anyway. And it taught me some really powerful things about where servanthood really comes from. Number one, servanthood really is motivated by love. 
It says that Jesus showed them the full extent of his love. He already loved them, and you will do things out of love that you never would have done for legalism. Legalism is a minimal expectant. Legalism says, I will do what I have to do to get by. Um, I want to make sure that I do just enough so that the rules are followed. But love says, no, no, no. I'm going to do as much as I can. I get to do that. And Jesus is, is doing that. He's expressing that, hey, I'm going the maximum distance to show you my love. He ultimately shows it on the cross because he says, talk is cheap. I want to show you love. And can I tell you, servanthood, talking about servanthood is cheap. But I want to show you servanthood. I want to show you love because I love you. My family has kind of caught this over the years. I say it a lot. Um, I would often say, uh, they'd say, um, oh, like for an example, if I'm going to kiss Tammy, um, you know, if I have to kiss Tammy, I'm going to probably give her a peck on the cheek, right? Oh, I've got to fulfill the obligation. But I always told the kids, I said, but, but, you know, I don't have to kiss Tammy. I get to kiss Tammy. And so when you, when you love someone, your kisses tend to be a little different. I don't have time to go into it now. But if you want a seminar later, we can talk, right? And so we wait. We, we, we just do it, right? You do things differently out of love. You'll, you'll do crazy things out of love. And so uh, Wesley must have caught this because um, a couple of years ago, and by the way, he's in college right now, and he, he isn't here to say, Dad, why did you tell that story? Um, I'm telling it, and I'm not even going to tell him I told it. But he'll probably know by the time this is done. And so a couple of years ago, he was in a play, and he was Captain Van Tropp in The um, uh, Sound of Music. Uh, I think it's how you say it. And uh, I really like the musical and stuff, and so I remember somewhat of the musical. And I said, um, so I said, is there a dance scene or something like that? And he goes, yeah, there's a dance. we got to dance and all that stuff. I said, oh, okay. I said, hey, um, do, you, do you have to kiss Maria? And he did not miss a beat, and he goes, no, but I get to. <laughs> And by the way, he didn't, uh, but that was uh, part of that. And When somebody's passionate about something, you don't have to make them do it. They just do it. When uh, Calvin was, what, 15 years old, he came to me. He said, Dad, I really want to learn how to play guitar. I said, okay. Well, I, and I've been playing guitar since I was, like, in sixth grade. I'm not very good, but in my recent years, I'm really not good because my, my arthritis in my wrist is so bad, I have a hard time getting it on the fret. So I really don't play much because it, it hurts. And so I pulled out my old guitar that I bought uh, 40 years ago. And uh, Calvin got on that guitar and I showed him how to play an F chord and a G chord and a C chord and an E and an E minor and an A and an, maybe an A7. And that's about it. That's probably all I knew. And I, every, every, every single um, a D, I, I mean, I probably went seven or eight chords max. And he just took off. We went, he wanted to buy his own guitar, and so we went down to the music shop, and, and we, we invested in a new guitar, and, uh, or a new used guitar, and we set it in the uh, front area every night. Dad, let's play guitar. 
And we, there was a couple of worship songs that were popular here at the time, and we learned them, you know, and we're playing every night, you know, Strength Will Rise When You Wait Upon the Lord and all those things. And we were just having a great time, and he just blew past me. Within, within two months, he's way beyond anything I could do. And Calvin, I never had to tell him to play. I never had to ask him to practice. Why? Because he was passionate, and he loved it. And when you're, it, maybe, 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 that's why in Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus is speaking to the church of Ephesus, he says, you guys are doing all the right stuff, but you got one problem. You've forsaken your first love. And you started in love, and you're continuing because you're just doing the right things. And you need to return to your first love again. And so I was praying, Lord, in those areas of my life where I become a minimalist or because I've, I've done it because I have to, would you just give me a genuine love for those people, my neighbors, my family, my wife, my, my church family, my leadership, would you give me and rebirth in me? And if I never had it, give birth it in me, a genuine love. The second thing I notice in this passage is that Servanthood is really fueled by your authority and your security. Insecure people have a hard time stooping. Secure people aren't worried about their position, so they're willing to stoop. I want you to see what it says in this passage. It's really powerful. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world and to go to the Father. Verse verse. Two says he, the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot. Verse 3 says Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. And I want you to see that. Jesus knew some things. Jesus knew who his Father was. He knew his identity. He knew that God the Father was his Father. He knew that, that the Father had put all things under his authority. And he knew that he was going to go to heaven. And i got to tell you, about a month ago, I read this and it just grabbed me. Because Jesus was not a wimp. And Jesus was not a weakling. Jesus was the most powerful individual in the room, but he knew who he was. He knew his identity. He knew where he was headed. And he knew that all things had been given to him in authority. And so what did he do? He stooped. He wasn't worried about position because he knew his position. And it radically transforms me when I realize that in prayer, I can come with authority. I can come with, I can share Christ with people. Why? Because I know who I am. I am a child of God through Jesus Christ. I am part of the family. I have the authority that is mine through Jesus Christ's work on the cross. And I know where I'm headed when I die. And it changes everything. Because I know that I'm the strongest in the room through Christ. There's a third lesson. 
The third lesson is simply this, is that servanthood is transformational. Can we go back to the last slide, please? Servanthood is transformational. What I mean is that it changes people's lives for eternity. He comes to Peter, and Peter is, is he's dealing with this whole pecking order thing. He's, he's looking at Jesus, and he, he's, he can't come to grips with the fact that Jesus wants to wash his feet. I mean, if John wants to wash my feet, I'd kind of be okay with that. If Judas wants to wash my feet, that'd be fine. If, if tax collector wants to wash my feet, that's fine too. But, but, but Jesus, see, there was nothing in Jesus that, or in Peter that made him think that he was at top of the heap. And so Jesus looks at him and Jesus says that, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. And I think he's talking about the fact that, that you know, obviously, unless you're washed by my blood, you're not going you're, you're to have a part of me. That unless I'm leading your life, you're not going to have a part of me. But I think what he's saying to Peter in this moment is that, Peter... You have heard me teach a lot of things, but unless you let me wash your feet, you will never understand what I mean, what it really means to be a genuine leader. You are not going to understand what it means to really have the heart of servanthood. And we know that Jesus washing the feet of the disciples transformed at least 11 of them. Eleven of them were willing to lay it all on the cross. Eleven of them, it, why? Because servanthood won't change everybody's life, but it'll impact more people's lives than you think. You fast forward 30 years. Peter is writing in the book of 1 Peter, and he's writing to the New Testament church. And this is what he writes. And I love this because he's... he's <laughs> um, I, I laugh at this. If you're a Dan, you've done this before. The first time you hear a pastor say something, then when you when you model it, you you quote them, right? I heard Pastor Phil say, and then the next time he does it, he goes, you know, I heard a, I heard a, a preacher one time say, and like by the third time you share something, you say, you know, I was thinking the other day. It becomes yours. It does. Over time, it just, you don't, you don't give credit anymore. First time you give credit. Second time you kind of refer to it. Third time, it's yours, you know. <laughs> so Peter's 30 years down the pike. He's now the leader of the church. He's had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. He's known what it is to have failed Christ. He's known what it is to have been restored by Christ. He has been pursued by grace. He has had his feet washed by the Son of God. Think about that. And so Peter is now speaking to the leaders of the church, and he says, um, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, because you're willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Where'd you hear that before? Not lording over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Oh, by the way, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those that are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud. And I think when Peter writes this, he goes, listen to me, God opposes the proud. I have been there. I have done that. I bought the t-shirt. I own a suit. But he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time. By the way, just a note here. Do you know this is one of those things God never tells you to pray for? I can't find a a single place in Scripture where God ever asks you to pray for humility. He says this is an act of your will. Humble yourself. I always get nervous when people say, Lord, teach us humility. Oh, no, 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 please don't. I'm like, nope, 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 nope. You don't have to, I, I, I give in. I, I'm, I'm, you don't have to, you know, I'm, you know I, Lord, I, I do it willingly because I know that when God teaches me humility, it always hurts. And he says, you make this choice. You're going to humble yourself before his mighty hand because he'll lift you up at due time. Peter looks at these other leaders and he said, if you really want to know what it means to lead like Jesus, this is what it looks like. I had a guy come to me, oh, 20 some years ago. His name was Lynn. And I was discipling him and he came up to me and he said, Pastor, he said, you must feel really bad. He said, you know, you, you, you can't ever be a servant. I said, what? He said, well, you're a leader. He says, leaders can't be servants. I said, oh, Lynn, I said, you, you, you missed it. Every one of us is gifted as God has gifted them. Servanthood is not an act. It is an attitude. Servanthood is not something you perform. It is a position of yieldedness as you minister. Now, get this servanthood, if you have a servant spirit, it must minister into the lives of others. Servanthood always expresses itself in ministry. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily children's ministry. It just means I'm either going to pray for that person, I'm going to go show grace to that person, I'm going to walk alongside that person, I'm going to teach that person, but God is going to use whatever your giftedness is. So my gifts happen to be preaching and communicating teaching and also leadership, and so God uses that, but God still wants me to do that with a servant's heart. Yesterday I was here with... um, a couple that was getting married, Aaron and Brad. And I stood right about in this area when they had communion together and the music was playing and I looked over at Brad and I said, Brad, um, God is calling you to be the spiritual leader of your family, but he wants you to lead Aaron like Jesus loves the church, which means you're going to lead by placing her above yourself. And you're going to use your authority that is given to you by Christ to serve her and to love her. 
And so I'm going to give you the elements of communion, and I want you to serve her first before you ever serve yourself. And so I handed him the bread, and he gave it to her, and then he gave it to himself, and together they took communion. And I gave him the the juice. And by the way, just so you know, I tell every man, do not try to do that. You're going to go right down the front of her dress, and then we're all in trouble. So make sure you hand it to her and let her be in charge of her own juice. And I said, but you're going to serve her first and then yourself. Why? Because I wanted to illustrate to him that if you're going to be the kind of leader that God wants you to be, it's going to be one who stoops. And I got to tell you, it isn't fair, but God always calls the strongest and the most spiritually mature to kneel. When Jesus was in the room, he was the most powerful room, uh, powerful person in the room. And he used his authority to stoop. And so this morning, um, I keep in my office a number of things. I'm a knick-knack guy. They mean a lot to me. But one of the things that I keep in my office is this towel. And some of you will remember this towel. Uh, 11, 12 years ago, I did a message on, on this. And uh, I bought like a 1,000 of these towels, and I put them all over the altars. And I encouraged people to pick up a towel um, to model that they were going to become a servant. And so I've kept this towel on my shelf, and it's, on, on, it's underneath a little olive wood statue of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And it sits on my shelf because every time I see it, it just reminds me that, Phil, God has called you to be a servant and to wash the feet of your wife. And God has called you as a dad to wash the feet of your children. And with your leadership here at Colonial Woods, God has called you to lead as one who was washing their feet. And to a congregation, every time you preach, God is calling. Now, I, I think I preach somewhat authoritatively, but, but God is calling me to preach as one who's washing people's feet. And to people that I don't like, because there's a few, not here, but to people who have wounded me, who've hurt me, that don't like me. God says, I want you to wash their feet. So I'd like for you just to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to envision that this morning you're kneeling and in front of you is a basin of water. And you have a towel. And there's a chair across from you. The question is who this morning would the Holy Spirit prompt you and say they're sitting in that seat and I want you to wash their feet. Maybe it's your spouse. And he says, I want you to return to your first love. Not because you have to, but because you love them. 
Maybe it's someone who's in this church. Maybe it's your parents. I'm going to wash their feet, not because I have to, but because, Lord, you're birthing a love in my heart toward them, and I want to be like Jesus. And so I want to, I want to wash their feet, not because I have to, but because I, I want to. Maybe it's your children, and you know you have to discipline them, but you're disciplining them with the heart that said that I'm really not doing this for me, I'm doing this for you. And sitting in that chair is someone who perhaps isn't even a part of your life anymore. They've so deeply hurt you and perhaps they even abandoned you. But in your mind's eye, Jesus is saying, take their feet and wash them and dry them and forgive them even though they don't even know that you need to do that. Because you are my child and your identity is not by some foolishness of this world, but your identity is in me and you have all authority through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you know where your destiny is you can give them that gift today. Lord, I believe you are going to transform eternity through the character of your people as we model you and we demonstrate your heart. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living.